Hello, I'm Skosha Monkovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the arts and emergency management sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. For those of you who might be joining us for the first time, you might like to know about the Creative Responders documentary series, which was released in October 2019. If you go back through your podcast feed, you'll see those earlier episodes. Each episode covers a story or case study about the power of the arts and creativity in disaster management. We explore the role of young people and children in building community resilience through the case study of Strathewan Primary School and their award-winning bushfire education program following the Black Saturday bushfires. We investigate how a First Nations community in North Queensland galvanised a community in the wake of Cyclone Yasi, and hear about the connectedness of arts, culture and country and their ongoing role as leaders in emergency response. We visit South Australia to talk to farmers impacted by ongoing drought to hear how creativity is bringing their communities together amidst the challenges of isolation, severe weather events and financial hardship. And we also visit Western Australia's understory art and nature trail to turn the microphone back on the artists working with trauma-impacted communities, to look at what artists can do for themselves, but also what structural changes we need to see in the sector to make practice safer and more sustainable. We are currently working on more stories for Season 2 of the documentary series and can't wait to share those with you later in the year. In the meantime, I'm so pleased to be connecting with you here through these monthly conversations. And I have to say, it's been great for me to get to spend time catching up with some of the key leaders and thinkers in our sector, despite the physical distance we have all been experiencing. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you a conversation I had recently with Amanda Lamont. Amanda is a specialist in stakeholder engagement, partnerships and relationship management, with a focus on disaster resilience and disaster risk reduction. Whether it's in her capacity as a volunteer firefighter, a lawyer, an international aid worker, or as the founder of the Australasian Women in Emergencies Network, the constant thread with Amanda is her deep passion for social justice and her immense drive and capacity for leadership to make improvement to people's lives. The perspectives Amanda shares in our conversation about the cascade of disasters so many communities are facing at the moment and her insights about the Bushfire Royal Commission feel especially poignant as we work through COVID-19 whilst looking ahead to another challenging summer here in Australia. We started this series with the goal of furthering discussion and deepening conversation around the issues facing disaster impacted communities. And Amanda is someone who can always be relied on to bring curiosity, deep thinking and loyalty to the work. I hope you enjoy this conversation with creative responder Amanda Lamont. Welcome everybody. I'm here in my home studio today with Amanda Lamont on Zoom with me, uh, who's going to be our guest speaker today. So I'd like to welcome you, Amanda. I'm on Yagara Unturable Country here in Brisbane, Queensland. Where are you? I am on the lands of the Wurundjeri people in the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria. I met Amanda a couple of years ago 
now at a uh, sector meeting and came very quickly to realise that she is quite a force within the disaster management sector. She's a specialist in stakeholder engagement, partnerships and relationship management, and she's got a strong focus on disaster resilience and disaster risk reduction and uh, comes with a extraordinary range of experiences and uh, a quite an adventurous life through all sorts of aspects of uh, disaster management. But would would you give us a bit of an idea of your journey so far, Amanda? Thanks, Scotia. Um, how it feels to me is um, I've ended up at a destination that I never really had in mind, that that's where I was heading. And it feels to me like my life has been a, um, all a, a bunch of jigsaw pieces coming together for me to, to be where I am today. So I actually... I started um, my career as a as a corporate lawyer in a big corporate law firm in Adelaide, um, going through law school, having an economics degree, thinking that I wanted to make a lot of money, have big shoulder pads and carry a briefcase. And um, I was following my peers and three years into my career as a corporate lawyer, um, I really found this um, humanitarian social justice value inside of me that, that made me think I was on the wrong side. Uh, being on the side of the corporates and that I was really driven by this, this my social values and my, my desire to really um, work in the humanitarian field. Um, subsequent to that, I, I left that job uh, and I've pretty much been working in not-for-profits and NGOs uh, and in government roles ever since. I travelled and lived overseas for quite a long time and I've actually travelled to over 60 countries. So I was then exposed to um, poverty and hardship and that sense of... Um, social justice really grew inside of me. And, and when I returned to Australia, um, I was really committed to pursuing a career um, that revolved around supporting people, vulnerable people, uh, people experiencing hardship. And I ended up um, in a role at World Vision Australia, working in the international programs department, supporting communities, um, part of the World Vision programs all around the world. And so I really then sort of grew on my personal experience as a, as a backpacker with a professional connection and understanding of um, community development and um, how how people are being supported and how we enable people to support themselves. After that role in international development, I got a job um, at Australian Red Cross and that role was actually in emergency management and that was the first time when I had uh, sort of that emergency management response humanitarian aid role uh, with the Red Cross and that coincided with me uh, moving to a, a bush property in the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria. And so what came together was this um, personal living scenario in the bush, a really high bushfire risk where I live, um, also with my career that had now been formed around working in disaster um, relief and response and recovery, um, that I became a, um, a volunteer firefighter as well. So the culmination of that personal value system around social justice and humanitarian work, um, coupled with uh, my overseas experience and, and now where I live has meant that my life is one big disaster, as I say. <laughs> one big disaster, particularly when you're thinking about that tinted eye, beautiful bush that I know is around your house. So you uh, you kind of talk about the cycle of how you got into here, but also that work has engaged you in 
lots of areas of what we call the disaster management cycle and and different people play different roles at different times as we th- when we think about the work or, of disaster or emergency management. Can you explain a little what we mean by that disaster management cycle? I think most people would understand that there is a before bit and a during bit and an after bit. So in you know in EM speak we talk about um, preparedness, mitigation, adaptation in the before phase. And then during a disaster, we talk about relief and response. And then afterwards, we talk about recovery. Um, that all makes sense as phases, if only it were that simple and neat. And they each, each of those um, would just neatly fit into a, a lovely little bucket. And we could say we're doing preparedness today. And next week, we'll be doing response. And then, then the week after that, we'll do recovery and then it will be over and we'll, we'll wait for the next round. Well, you know, it's the world has absolutely changed. Uh, it was never that simple. It was never that simple. It's even more complicated and less simple now because our experience in the last six to nine months in Australia um, has been that um, we have experienced um, starting, you know, these we had bushfires in the east coast of Australia starting in September last year near where you are, Scotia. So for the last nine months, um, we started experiencing bushfires out of season in our winter. Um, this was on top of many areas of Australia that were had been in drought for three years. So drought people, they were very much in a response phase, but also preparing for future years of drought and recovering from past years. So they're experiencing those phases together. Then we have these massive bushfires that are hugely disruptive and traumatic to people that are already experiencing their trauma. So the bushfires come on top. We're fighting bushfires all down the east coast, across the south coast, in the west coast. Um, you know, every every state in Australia was impacted over summer with bushfires um, on top of that drought. And so in those bushfires, they went on for such a prolonged period of time. I was working in New South Wales in the south coast in January, and we had transitioned from that response and relief phase into recovery those bushfires came back and impacted that same community that was journeying into recovery and we had to go back into relief and response and shut down recovery centers and reopen evacuation centers so these cycles of before during and after are coming over the top of each other just to make things even more complicated and traumatic for people we now um, in our recovery from those bushfires some people um, in recovery since september some people are really only getting into recovery since march when those fires were extinguished now we have real limitations on how we can support recovery because of covid 19. so people now in a response phase with respect to covid recovery phases at different areas with respect to the bushfires We've got storms and flood now impacting those communities. So yes, there are different phases. Um, we can rally around all of those different phases, but inherently we need, need to see these disasters holistically um, in all of those phases happening together because that's, that's exactly what's happening now, these disasters cascading over the top of each other. So you could, we're supporting a community in recovery in northeast Victoria and they're actually in response for COVID. Um, and they've been in recovery, you know, for years for other things. So it's incredibly complicated. On top of that, um, people experience those different phases at different times. Some people would say they're still in response and relief phase for the bushfires. Many would say we've been waiting for months. We've been in recovery for months and nothing's happening yet. So responding to the different needs, it's it's incredibly complicated. So I don't I don't like to really talk about the different phases and in a siloed approach. Um, that we're constantly all moving between all of those phases and that, that, that people that work in this space and communities experiencing disasters 
really just need to be prepared to bounce backwards and forwards amongst all of them. Yeah, there's no sense of kind of a linear time frame either. And I think one of the, we often talk about the challenge of time and how we understand and and uh, work within a time frame that isn't restricted in the sense of this will occur over the next two years and then we're finished. Uh, and you, you're right, it's um, the intersection of all of these different impacts that we're experiencing. We could say right now that we're sort of at a penultimate learning experience around that intersection of multiple disasters and yet we're seeing um, uh, a kind of response and recovery frame that isn't suitable for for that and interestingly um, you know we're just going into what is being triggered in the political cycle around a review of what we did over the summer holidays the the bushfire royal commission that's starting to look at well what do we learn from this experience and from my understanding there's no relationship in that royal commission to see it in the context of the impact of COVID on top so it's a kind of interesting that even when we're planning to build a better future in terms of how we manage we're still not looking at the layers of complexity i think that's right um First and foremost, disasters are complex. Recovering from disasters is complex and they're complex because they involve people. And that is always going to compl- complicate, you know, phases and silos and a, and a sort of systematic policy approach to, to how you, you support people. So it's really complicated and, and, and the best recovery would be down to a really individual level. So each and every person that's been impacted, whether that's directly because they lost their home or whether that's indirectly because they've lost an income or they're suffering from um, post-traumatic stress as a result of what they experienced or a near-death experience. If recovery for every individual could be for them, for their individual circumstances, um, that would... That would be great, but the reality is that we work with communities in recovery at all different levels, at a, at a household level and then at a, a local community level and certainly at a state and a national level. And the Royal Commission is um, coming together to explore, you know, how, how is our response to what they've phrased as a natural disaster and, and perhaps I could segue quickly to talk about, you know, there is no such thing as a natural disaster. We have natural hazards. Disasters come because um, they impact people in terms of directly or what we value. So, it, so even the fact we have a Royal Commission into Natural Disasters is really missing the point that the disaster is related to people. You know, the natural bit is related to the hazard. And, 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 the, and a first point would be dis- to disconnect those two together. Um, the risk, of course, is if we talk about natural disasters, the easy response is, well, it's natural, what can we do? Uh, there's nothing we can do about that. But in actual fact, in a disaster and how it impacts people, there's a whole lot we can do to minimise the pain and suffering that people experience as a result of disasters. So just a bit of a side about that Royal Commission. Um, we've had Royal Commissions in the past. We've had inquiries. Uh, we've had um, lots of research done in relation to disasters and our pr- preparation, our response and our recovery, but not really our recovery, not really our preparedness. You know, we focus on how many, how many boots on the ground and how many helicopters in the sky and how many trucks did we have rolling along the road? And we keep looking at that and we keep looking at that. 
And of course, we want to have more resources and, and, and more firefighting ability and more people to sandbag in the case of floods and tarp roofs. The reality is, um, with a changing climate, uh, we are going to experience more extreme weather events. They are going to expand across um, a longer period of time, not traditional three-month summer and three-month winter for storms. We're going to see these things crossing over. So that's going to be complicated and we really need to invest our time and resources, I believe, in understanding that complexity and understanding how we can better prepare and mitigate what is the disaster, which is the pain and suffering caused to people and our environment, because that's, of course, something we value, um, and, and, and less so much on how we can stop these fires. And you, you ask a firefighter, a commissioner um, who was responsible for that incident management, um, those fires were unstoppable. There were no amount of resources that could be put towards those fires. So I would love to see a Royal Commission into recovery. Um, to work out what are we doing, how have we done it in the past, and how can we learn from from what from our previous experiences and take that forward into the next one? Um, and on top of that, all those royal commissions, you know, have we implemented all of the findings and recommendations uh, from past royal commissions and inquiries uh, into our current processes, or are we just doing another one and, and we're going to come up with another list, list of um, recommendations that will be really nice to think about, but but when the fire happens, we still do the same thing and we go into recovery. Yeah, so how do we broaden the conversation so there's action orientated out of that? I'm interested in how you frame that idea that a disaster is what has happened in the human context. And I think from our perspective that the arts bring into this uh, disaster management area a real way to engage with the human elements that we are we are working with, you know, that at an individual, at a community, at a state and a national level, we, you're rightly saying we're, we are dealing with people and lives and emotions and how we deal and think about our place in our landscape. And where, where do you think that the, the voice of the arts or culture should sit or could possibly sit within this um, process? Isn't it a shame, Scotia, that you're talking about where could it sit and we're not having a conversation about where is it where it is absolutely sitting right now in our context of um, recovery from the bushfires and this response phase that we're in with respect to COVID that we're still talking about it as something that might be a good idea or that it might happen I wish we were so much further advanced because of what we've learned and that we were talking about let's talk about what is actually happening right now um Look, I guess when I, talk, when I think about the role of arts, I think about um, some of the work that I do um, as a volunteer with the Red Cross. I do a lot of work with our volunteers and directly with communities on supporting them through what we call psychological first aid. And this is, a, this is um, something that we um, use to support people who are suffering an immediate trauma, to support them and instill hope and calm and alleviate whatever immediate suffering that they're going through. As part of that training, um, there's a strong element of self-care that we teach our volunteers. And I talk, to, I talk to people that I train about stress, what causes stress, and I talk to people about what they do to alleviate their stress. And guess what is a common theme amongst everybody that I talk to about what they do when they're feeling stressed? It's art. A lot of people 
have an art project or an art idea or an art influenced theme that they turn to when they need to relax, reflect, uh, recover, de-stress, unwind. So we know in a normal situation, people turn to the arts um, professionally or, or personally, a craft project at home. Um, they turn to that to feel better. And that exact same scenario can apply to communities that are recovering. So when we talk to communities in, in their recovery, we talk to them about what is it that they normally do to, to feel better and to relax and to de-stress and really have some time out for them to make sense of everything. That's where art comes in. That is where art is really important because it brings people together uh, around a common love. Um, it enables people to have their own self-reflection time if it's something they're doing for themselves. And, and as you and I both know, art can play a really key role in creating um, memorials and, and ways for a community to remember what they have experienced together and that united them and to have some, some ongoing memory of, of what they experienced. And, and this can be through art. So, yeah, art's important. We, we actually all know that already. And the fact that we're not actually working harder to make sure this is a really integral part of our, our programs, um, certainly in recovery, but sometimes art in recovery, it's really organic and it happens and it should be really spontaneous. But that doesn't mean there can't be a lot of things that we can do to, to set the scene in our, in our what we call our preparedness phase in communities and understand what the arts culture is like in a community before a disaster and then working about how we can bring that back and actually make that even um, much stronger in a community. I think, that's, I think it's essential. Yeah, well, we think it's essential too. <laughs> but I'm kind of, I'd like to pick up on what you say that it's often seen as recovery. And I think we don't have to uh, sort of argue our position there too much. But I, I'm really uh, excited about the potential of what we can bring into the other phases of what we're talking about as the emergency management cycle. I think that the capacity for the arts to bring a, a creative lens into understanding complexity is something that I don't think we um, are recognised for, certainly not when we're talking about working across sectors and certainly not within the government. But potentially the creative brain uh, has ways of looking at problem solving and planning and future thinking in a way that would be really useful into what is a very complex scenario. I think one of the challenges um, that we have um, in that context, Scotia, is a lack of understanding about what you mean or what we mean or what we think when we say the arts. You think about people who run festivals. They make a city overnight and often it's much more inviting and creative and vital, a place for pe that people want to go to than an evacuation centre that is often seen to be cold and harsh and, and dehumanising. So what could we bring in, just for example, in that space? Okay, so for example, in a cold, wet, dark, scary evacuation centre that has no power because the power's gone, and when the circus is in town down the road and the circus carries its generators across to the evacuation centre and lights the place up, we're not, we're not talking about entertaining or performing. We're talking about exactly what you said, the ability to create a safe space that's, that, can be, that can be set up in a matter of time. We saw that happen this summer 
Um, that was exactly what happened when the, when the circus was in town. Uh, people were evacuated that night. There was no power. The circus rallied. They brought a, a, across all of their equipment and resources and enabled that evacuation centre to have some power and some light. So that's a real example. That's not, <laughs> that's not what people would think when we talk about the arts. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Because sometimes I think uh, people, you talk about arts in, in a community that's, that's been devastated and recovering. They would think, well, the last thing I want right now is the ballet in town. I haven't got time to watch the ballet. I've got work to do. I don't think people fully appreciate how much arts is a part of their life. And a lot of these communities, these regional communities that have been devastated, those festivals, those iconic festivals that they have rolling out in their communities year upon year, um, they are key. Those, those towns are packed out. They bring people into town and they also give the town a chance to show off and feel, pr- feel real pride about where they live and, and what they represent. So there's so much sort of... Um, so much underlying just just an arts performance to make people feel good for half an hour. It's so much bigger than that. And, and I love the way you talk about arts enabling people to understand complexity and to understand systems and, and processes. I think it can certainly do that at all, all levels. Well, we've got a, uh, we've got a long and uh, keen road ahead of us to keep working together more collaboratively and I'm pretty excited about that. There's another area that I first met you, Amanda, at a breakfast in Brisbane um, a couple of years ago now I think and you were there I had not I had heard about you but I was very keen to see you around the table at what was the first Australasian Women in Emergencies Network meeting for Brisbane and uh, we started to become friends after that because we had quite a heated conversation around Yuval Harari's um, representation of the evolution of of uh, the human species. So um, can you tell us a bit about that network? Um, I found a real connection there in terms of the efforts for people, well, and women in emergency management to talk about the role of leadership because I think it's a common conversation that we have in the arts where a lot of the work and the evolution of our art sector occurs through the energy of women, but we have very little representation within the kind of key leadership p- positions. And I, um, one of the key roles of the Australasian Women in Emergencies Network is around how do we build the voice and the contribution of women more effectively. Yeah, so two, uh, just over two years ago, um, this idea was formed. Um, two colleagues of mine in the emergency sector um, and I were at a breakfast for International Women's Day, and um, what we realised was there was no there was no uh, network or or organisational group for women who work in an emergency context. Um, so we sat around a coffee table over the course of a couple of months and and came up with a vision and a strategy and an idea. We tested it. It was sound. We were inundated with go for it. This is fantastic. Where do I sign up? So two years later, we have over a thousand members. We've expanded from the Australian Women in Emergencies Network to the Australasian Women in Emergencies Network. Um, And we have women from all around the world keen to set up something similar or or be um, um, sort of hybrid members of that network um, because they're not geographically placed here. So, So we really hit on something and some of the key the key things we talked about early on were around supporting, promoting and recognising and celebrating the role that women play in emergencies. 
Um, and, and as you did, and I'll, I'll just pick you up, you, you put the word management in there and we very, very purposely are not about women in emergency management. And that's really important because women play really important roles in an emergency context that you would not describe as part of emergency management because we do have women who are employed in emergency management and emergency services as members, absolutely, and that extends from firefighters to emergency services and health workers um, <clears throat> who have a first responder operational role. But women have such a, such a huge role to play beyond what we normally see in lights and sirens and uniforms. Women who run community libraries, neighbourhood houses, local arts centres, women that are, you know, really integral parts of the family and the household structure in terms of the support that they provide uh, their family and their neighbours. And what we wanted to recognise was because disasters and emergencies impact, can impact every element of somebody's life, it's not just you have a fire, it's put out and then you carry on. There's so much more that is impacted when a disaster impacts just at a household level, but, but more so in a community and a, and a state level, that, that women play a really important role. And we wanted that to be recognised. The role that women play, um, going about often what they would say is, is, is a role that has nothing to do with emergencies and disasters. Teachers, for example, you know, the role that they have in supporting kids in their disaster resilience education. So we wanted to make it really open that it wasn't about response and it wasn't about lights and sirens. And we thought we could replicate in the network this um, multi-sector approach to disasters where we bring around the table um, all the people that have a role to play that we would like to also see roll out in a disaster in all those phases. So we do have people that work in transport, teachers, students, researchers. We have firefighters, emergency services, health workers, doctors, defence. Um, we have all of the players that have a key role to play in that holistic support to a community plus community members by the way in the network and that sort of replicates how you'd like a really great emergency management scenario to look with all of those players well represented around the table so we're all about celebrating and recognizing and and building on that once we actually get the message out that women are here too and you know I want to just say that message and I've said it many times I get asked in the context of the network what is it that women do better than men in emergencies? Or what is it that we do that men can't do? And the answer is absolutely nothing. It's not that women do things differently or better or instead of. It's, it's more about, you know, and what I've said, it's sort of hashtag us too. Women do all of those things as well. And we just want that to be recognised and celebrated. And because we bring such um, such a wealth of life experience that is different and recognising the diversity that women bring to a conversation. You know, we really advocate for women to have much more presence in leadership roles in, in emergencies in all phases. We've seen some progress. We're still far from where we need to be. And I would suggest that at, an, at a national level, people would be possibly patting themselves on the back to say we've done a great job in, in having equality in our recruitment and women firefighters and women on the front line. Here's my problem with this leadership. Um, women inherently in roles in disaster recovery are held by women. Um, so in the normal course, um, in, um, in outside of an activation phase of a disaster, 
those those roles that are seen as disaster recovery roles supporting communities in that long road to recovery are usually held by women and when we have these disasters and we have appointed um, people to oversee the recovery operations those appointments have all been to men so we have women with all of this wealth of experience and, and ongoing day-to-day understanding of the complexity and the connections that the women have um, all of a sudden when you appoint someone to a senior leadership role at a state level or a national level you look at all those roles those appointments that have been made they are to men and i think that lacks um lacks the the, the growth and the evolution that that we would have hoped to have seen and i i think we can do better we just have to do better because we're not recognizing what is what is playing out on the ground when we have all of these leadership roles the positions are held by men yeah it's interesting too that in the kind of international conversation at the moment around the the response to covid there's been a lot of talk about um the the different sensibility in terms of how women leaders of the world have managed the situation. And maybe it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the complexities that we're looking at in terms of these multiple layers of impact on people's lives. And inevitably, um, you know, someone who who is in a leader position that has who has a sense of that through every layer of their life has a better capacity to bring that to leadership. It's not to say that men don't have that, but more importantly, perhaps people who have stepped into these certainly higher level kind of leadership roles have more command and control kind of background so that doesn't invite you into looking at multiple levels of complexity with such ease. Uh, I'll share with you a reflection um, and I'm, I'm working with communities in, in northeast Victoria at the moment and uh, I am asked in that role um, a number of times to tell people how many, um, for example, properties were impacted and they expect that to be an easy number to share. Uh, it's, it's going to be a number and it's just there on a spreadsheet ready to share. My response is always, what do you mean by impacted? Uh, because we can look at direct tangible impact. You know, this many people and families have lost their home. So I'm assuming you mean those. Do you mean the people that lost fencing? Do you mean the people that had their paddocks burned and their cattle and stock destroyed or injured? Uh, do you mean people that lost crop? Do you mean people that had a lot of smoke damage to their assets? Do you mean people that lost access to their homes in or out? Do you mean people that suffered a horrendous near-death experience and trauma of this fire just circling around for days and coming and going? So when we talk about how many people were impacted or how many properties were impacted or what was the impact, it's not that simple. And if we can really fully understand the rollout of layers upon layers of, of impact on a family, it's much harder to answer. And I, there are times we need to simplify it, but it's, it's not simple. Um, I didn't even mention then the economic cost to people that potentially not even impacted by the fire directly at all, but their businesses now have shut down because there are no tourists in the area. Access to roads was shut for a long time. Um, and coming into a peak period now for um, for skiing in the high country and in the Alpine region in in southeast Australia, um, these businesses have been absolutely directly directly impacted by the bushfires. But pe- people won't necessarily 
um, see that. Um, and this is this is somebody potentially livelihood, something that a business that somebody's spent their lives building together uh, is lost. So so impact is complex, and to have diversity in decision making really really important and I I don't disagree with you the the men that have been appointed to these positions have a lot of experience they've got lived experience in various capacities I have no doubt that they are empathetic and sympathetic to what they're seeing and the role that they play and the responsibility that they have but they they can only see things through their lived experience and through what they know and what they feel and there's things that they have never lived or felt they can only hear and so I think it just it's just a gap. It's just always going to be a gap unless you have somebody sitting around the table who can speak from a personal perspective through through their eyes and experience that is very different and diverse from the person sitting at the head of the table. I think we're going to have gaps. When you talk about having the voice of that experience in the room, often we contextualise that with the idea of a community-led uh, recovery or the idea that the community voice needs to to lead any decision making because they are the ones that sit in that complexity and have a capacity to see it uh, collectively as well. So what is that how you frame community led because it's a big term that's been used a lot in the policy documents and in the kind of hallway conversations oh we're doing community led recovery now but what's your understanding of how we might work within a context of community led processes? Yeah, they are two big words, aren't they? Um, what does it mean? What, is, what does community mean? Um, I have, as you know, done a lot of work in developing national uh, publications and we use the term community um, regularly. And quite recently I stopped uh, using the word community and replaced it with communities to to be less specific and more inclusive because there's sort of never such thing as one community. And I say that because the challenge is to talk about community-led recovery um, gives the impression that there is one community with one view and that um, all of the needs are the same across that community. So one of the things I say, it's it's communities. So then you have this um, sort of Venn diagram or or hatched sort of community levels and, and people belong to a whole lot of different communities and so you have representation from all the different types of communities whether they be geographic or interest or gender-based or location um, or um, sort of business interest. So for a start to recognise that community-led recovery means lots of different communities potentially from the same place, not one community from one place. So we, so we want to recognise communities and all of the different interests that a community will have. And then to have the voice of the community represented, um, it's hard because you almost, going back to that recovery at a household level, every single person should have a voice and how can we ensure that uh, a, a person that is representing the community is representing all the community equally or that we haven't created a scenario where it's the loudest voice um, speaking on behalf of community but not necessarily so it's it's incredibly challenging and but doesn't mean we should stop and say that's too hard let's roll out a cookie cutter blanket approach to how we support communities because it's a bit easier so I think we need to just get comfortable in the challenge and the hardness 
Um, and well, I, again, that's the place where we bring a lot of experience because a lot of the work of artists who work within communities context are. Uh, have uh, tools and capacities to create spaces to be safe to raise those different voices. And you're already in a heightened uh, emotional space when we're talking about disaster impact and recovery, but the arts have a capacity for us to work through that in safe and meaningful, trustworthy ways. So when we would talk to somebody who would put their hand up to say, hey, I would like to be a community representative in this, in this process... We would, we would ask them, how are you representing the community and what mechanisms and tools do you have in place that enable you to connect in and understand what the community need is and, and then to present that through to other audiences and forums? So, so certainly um, if, if there was a space or a, a tool or a mechanism or a framework, and I hate those words because they sound so jargonistic, but creating the space, for, for, for a better word, um, for those peoples to to be able to tap into to a way to engage with their community would be really helpful because when we ask that question, it does stump some people. They think that they have chatted to their neighbour and therefore they know what what needs to be done, or they think because they feel that uh, they therefore represent the community because it's what they need. Yeah, and in this instance, they might feel safe to be able to voice that, but there are a lot of people who have deeper and richer voices that don't feel safe to step forward. So it's, a, you know, as again, another layer of complexity in terms of how we're working. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, how you frame and understand the complexities, but I suppose more from a personal level, Amanda, do you have any experience you can share with us that you, where you've seen or felt the value of participation in a kind of arts creative process or have had a touch of what it could bring into this space? I have seen in my professional roles... Um, many fabulous examples of how the arts has supported a community at a really important time and and in many cases no one ever would have envisaged that would have been the thing that made people feel better so my first my first reflection is um for it to be agile and organic and respond um to the community and often it's something that the community often will drive itself from a personal perspective, um, I yeah I had this really really interesting um, experience. I uh, as you know you're well aware of the um, the tree project that was associated with um, the communities recovering from the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 in Victoria. I attended the um, the unveiling of that tree um, with a lot of people from the community. And it was a real occasion. It was a fabulously celebratory occasion and they had lots of market stalls. One of the things they had, this, this tree, as you know, has got leaves made from blacksmiths locally and from all around the world, um, these metal leaves. They had a, a stand set up and they had some women blacksmiths who were actually making leaves for people to purchase at the time. And, um, yeah, so I bought... I bought three leaves and that was one for me and uh, one for each of my sisters. Uh, I hate to say I have all three still because I think they look beautiful together on my necklace. So um, <laughs> so I have this beautiful memory, which is it's so beautiful and, and I love wearing it. But the other leaf that I bought 
was one that I had engraved um, with a message and I sent that to my father who lives in Western Australia now but he has had a lifetime of firefighting experience as a volunteer and as a park ranger working in national parks and he has many stories that he's told about his experience as a child living in the bush and then as a firefighter and and his near-death experiences and his exposure to the trauma of seeing other people lose things. So I decided to send him a leaf with um, with some words engraved that, that basically said that I was so proud of everything that he'd contributed to that, in, you know, in the, in the space of bushfire, living it and, and, and fighting bushfires. And so through arts, I have been able to share something with my father. And now being a firefighter, we have this sort of connection. Um, I was able to share something with him through the arts that gives him something to say, you know, he doesn't have medals in the context of how he works. He doesn't get medals and doesn't stand, stand in line and get to shake hands. It doesn't work that way for him. But now he's got something that, that says, Hey, you know, you, you did a great job and you contributed to something really important and you should be proud. And I was able to say that to him through a piece of art I probably wouldn't say say something like that to him otherwise. And so so personally, I have this, you know, beautiful stories about how the arts have, one, given me something to really treasure as a memory of some, you know, devastating bushfires that were here in my neighbourhood. Um, and then also give something to my father to say, um, you know, we see you and, and we thank you for everything that you've done. What a beautiful story. And that's the uh, one of the great things about creativity we can make tangible what is often a very intangible thing for ourselves our emotions or the ways that we want to share what is very vulnerable places for ourselves thank you so much amanda for such a great conversation and i always appreciate uh, my talks with you and the exchanges that we have and certainly for me in this growing and learning space that i sit in working within uh, you know, a really broad and complex sector that I haven't uh, uh, been in for a long time. It's a really great to sit and reflect with you about different ways and ways that we might think into a, a really rich future and, and ones where arts and artists as active citizens play a really strong and impactful role. It's been really nice chatting with you, Scotia, and I do fondly remember the day that we met and the conversation we had about the history of humankind. And I love that we're still talking about it and talk to you today about something that you and I are both passionate and committed to, um, supporting people through traumatic experiences and particularly um, through looking after themselves through through art and culture um, and something that's come from the community for the community. It's um, close to my heart and I... I love that uh, that you and I can continue to have these conversations. So thanks very much for the chat. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And we look forward to working with you into that great, rich future. See you. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. And a special thanks to Amanda for sharing her many insights. We have another great conversation coming up next month. If you haven't already, you can subscribe for free to Creative Responders in your favourite podcast app or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to hear about upcoming episodes and other news from the network.
Creative Responders In Conversation is produced by me, Skosha Monkovic, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. The Creative Recovery Network is assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts, funding and advisory body. Thanks so much for listening.